Hello, everyone, and welcome to the August 30th edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with the Floyd Scarron Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The California Supreme Court clarified and then limited the Prevet Doctrine, which is often used to protect construction project owners from tort claims by employees of some of their subcontractors. The 1993 case, which created the Prevet Doctrine, set forth a strong presumption under California law that a hirer of an independent contractor delegates to the contractor all responsibility for workplace safety. This means that a hirer is typically not liable for injuries sustained by an independent contractor or its workers while on the job. One of the three rationales for this doctrine is that contractors are able to obtain workers' compensation to cover any on-the-job injuries. Courts have nevertheless identified two limited circumstances in which the presumption is overcome. First, it was held in the 2002 Hooker case that a hirer may be liable when it retains control over any part of the independent contractor's work and negligently exercises that retained control in a manner that affirmatively contributes to the worker's injury. And the second exception, that occurred in the 2005 Kinsman case. It was held that a landowner who hires an independent contractor may be liable if the landowner knew or should have known of a concealed hazard on the property that the contractor did not know of and could not have reasonably discovered, and the landowner failed to warn the contractor of this hazard. In the present case before the Supreme Court, the plaintiff sought to create an extension of this second extension. The property owner was John Mathis. He lives in a one-story house with a flat, sand, and gravel roof. The roof contains a large skylight covering an indoor pool. The injured plaintiff here was Louis Gonzalez. He was a professional window washer who first started cleaning Mr. Mathis's skylight back in the 1990s as an employee of another company, Beverly Hills Window Cleaning. Then in the mid-2000s, Gonzalez started his own professional window washing company. He was injured in a slip-and-fall accident while walking on the Mathis roof. Gonzalez filed suit against Mathis, claiming the roof was slippery, with no tie-off points to attach safety harnesses and no safety walls. Gonzalez testified that he knew of these conditions that deteriorated over time. The trial court then granted Mr. Mathis's motion for summary judgment, finding that Mathis owed no duty to Gonzalez pursuant to the Prevet Doctrine. But then the Court of Appeal reversed the trial court and in effect added a third exception to the Prevet Rule. The California Supreme Court intervened and reviewed the case and declined to add a third exception and thus reversed the Court of Appeal in the case of Gonzalez versus Mathis. This case compelled the Supreme Court to answer a simple but important question. 
if there's a known hazard on the property that the independent contractor cannot remedy or protect against through the adoption of reasonable safety precautions, and the contractor or one of its workers is injured after proceeding to do the work anyway, is the landowner liable to the contractor in tort. The court concluded that pursuant to Prevet's strong presumption that a hirer delegates to an independent contractor all responsibility for workplace safety, a landowner owes no duty to the contractor or its workers to remedy a known hazard on the premises or take other measures that might provide protection against the hazard. Proposition 22, this is the California Gig Workers Law, which allows companies like Uber and Lyft to treat workers as independent contractors, not employees, has been ruled unconstitutional and unenforceable by a California Superior Court judge. Voters approved the law as a ballot initiative Proposition 22 back in November with companies like Uber, Lyft, and DoorDash spending more than $200 million to campaign for the measure. Labor organizations, including the Service Employees International Union, opposed it. But Proposition 22 passed with 59% of the vote and was backed by a 4-to-1 margin by rideshare drivers who favored the flexibility given to them by the law. But in January, a group of Uber and Lyft drivers, along with the SEIU union, filed a lawsuit seeking to have the measure overturned. California Superior Court Judge Frank Roche issued a ruling that the law illegally limits the power of the future legislature to define app-based drivers as workers subject to workers' comp law. Adding that, the entirety of Proposition 22 is therefore unenforceable. He also ruled that it was unconstitutional that the law required any future amendments to have a 7 8 vote of approval to pass the legislature. Judge Roche took issue with the part of the law that requires any future California law concerning collective bargaining for gig workers to comply with Prop 22. However, all the provisions of Prop 22 will remain in effect until the appeal process is complete. A spokesperson for the Protect App-Based Drivers and Services Coalition which includes Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, and Instacart, said they plan to appeal. The SEIU California State Council praised the judge's ruling. The ruling caused investors to dump shares of both companies the following day. Both companies are supporting a similar measure in Massachusetts that is expected to be on their ballot next year. New York is also looking into the matter. The WCAB answered the question, when is a roommate a partial dependent for death benefits in the panel decision of O'Sullivan and the Death Without Dependents Unit versus the City of Sacramento? 
The decedent here was Tara O'Sullivan, who worked as a police officer for the city of Sacramento when she died from a gunshot wound on June 19, 2019. Krista Horvath and Miss O'Sullivan were sisters. Just prior to her death, decedent and her sister Horvath agreed to move in together with Miss Horvath's fiancé. This would allow Miss Horvath to save some money for her planned wedding. They had already signed a lease before her death and intended to split the utility bills in half. The death without dependence unit argued at trial that Miss Horvath would merely have been a roommate of decedent and that sharing the bills as part of a family pot is insufficient to establish dependency. Nonetheless, the work comp judge found that competing applicant Krista Horvath was indeed a partial dependent of the deceased employee Tara O'Sullivan and dismissed the claim of the death without dependence unit. The WCAB panel denied the death without dependence unit petition for reconsideration in the panel decision. They said that dependency is determined as of the time of injury and may be found to be total or partial, depending upon the facts that are established. Dependency may be defined as reliance upon another person for support. Partial dependents are those who, at the time of injury, have means of support other than the deceased contributions. To prove partial dependency, it is sufficient to show that the claimant looked to the deceased contributions to maintain his or her accustomed mode of living, and that the same living standard could not long be maintained without support. The contribution must be made in goods or money, and the value of services is not considered. The facts here establish that decedent intended to take on a greater share of the family pot so that applicants save for her, could save for her wedding. If only applicant and decedent lived together, the splitting of rent and utilities would likely be insufficient to establish dependency as it is a true family pot with equal expenses split. However, here, three people were to occupy the apartment, not two. Decedent agreed, in effect, to subsidize applicants' rent and utilities. That agreement was sufficient to establish a partial dependency where the applicant is the decedent's sister. The petition for reconsideration also focused on the fact that there was a promise for support prior to decedent's passing and that no actual support occurred prior to death. A mere promise of future support is indeed not, as a rule, a basis for a dependency finding except where circumstances indicate a bona fide assumption of responsibility for support without opportunity to make contributions prior to the injury. But the significant fact here is that they signed a lease together prior to Miss O'Sullivan's death. <clears throat> By signing a lease contract, there was a bona fide assumption of responsibility for support, which occurred prior to death. 
The only reason that Miss O'Sullivan did not make payments prior to her death was her untimely death by shooting. And in another case, the WCB panel rejected VR total disability, citing the long-standing Hagelin substantial evidence rule. In this case, Brenda Lee sustained an industrial injury in 2014 to her back, hips, and left leg while employed by the Employment Development Department. Her case was resolved in 2018 by a stipulation for 20% permanent disability. But less than two months later, Lee filed a petition to reopen and obtained a vocational evaluation with Frank Diaz, who said that Lee was unable to return to work in the open labor market. During the litigation of this case, Dr. McGann served as the panel QME and reevaluated her after the petitioner reopened. The work comp judge found that Lee sustained 26% permanent disability based upon the reporting of Dr. McGann, the PQME, and that the reporting of the VR evaluator was not substantial evidence to be relied upon. The WCAB denied her petition for reconsideration in the panel decision of Lee versus California Employment Department. Throughout Dr. McGann's reporting, applicants' work restrictions remained essentially the same. Lee was required to alternate sitting and standing every 10 minutes, no lifting, pushing, or pulling greater than 20 pounds, and a 10-minute break every hour. Mr. Diaz, the VR specialist, interpreted this restriction as requiring breaks totaling 80 minutes a day and that these breaks could not be readily accommodated in the open labor market. However, his May 24, 2017 report, Dr. May McGann, the PMQME, explained the restriction clearly. He did not believe that Ms. Lee had to clock out and take an off-the-clock break. Ms. Mr. Diaz did not review the May 24, 2017 report by the QME and was therefore unaware of this important distinction in the restriction. In the 1971 Hagelin v. Workers' Comp Appeals Board decision, the panel noted that reports of opinions, reports and opinions are not substantial evidence if they are known to be erroneous or if they are based on facts no longer germane, on inadequate medical histories and examinations, or on incorrect legal theories. Mr. Diaz's vocational reevaluation was not substantial evidence on the issue of permanent disability, in part because he his reporting was based on a misinterpretation of the applicant's work restrictions given by the PQME. And now our crime report. The California Attorney General announced a $3.1 million settlement against Home Respiratory Services Company, Supercare Health Incorporated, for defrauding the state and the federal government. The proposed settlement resolves allegations that the Downey-based company which services patients in Southern California and Nevada, submitted fraudulent claims to Medi-Cal 
in violation of the state and federal false claims acts. The company was charged with billing Medicare and Medi-Cal for servicing ventilators that were no longer medically necessary. Under the proposed settlement, Supercare will pay a total of $3.31 million to multiple government plaintiffs, with California receiving about $327,000 of that money. Supercare sells and rents equipment used in the treatment of breathing-related disorders such as sleep apnea and chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. One of the machines used to assist patients with breathing is a non-invasive ventilator. The ventilators, either with or without oxygen, deliver pressurized air to patients to assist in the breathing process, particularly during sleep. A whistleblower who filed the case in the United States District Court for the Central District of California alleged that continued service that the company service not continued to service non-invasive ventilators ventilators that were no longer being used by patients and were not medically necessary and therefore no longer eligible for medical reimbursement a subsequent 3-year investigation by the California Department of Justice Division of Medical Fraud and Elder Abuse working with other officials was consistent with the allegations. A federal jury found a disbarred California personal injury lawyer, 48-year-old Philip James Layfield, also known as Philip Samuel Pessin, guilty of 22 felonies for stealing the majority of a multi-million dollar settlement that should have paid, been paid to a car accident victim as well as cheating on his income taxes. According to the evidence presented at his 13-day jury trial, Layfield owned and operated law firms including Layfield and Barrett, which maintained offices in Irvine, Los Angeles, El Segundo, Park City, Utah, and Scottsdale, Arizona. In 2016, Layfield entered into an agreement to represent an individual who was struck by an automobile in Orange County and suffered significant injuries. After negotiating a $3.9 million settlement, Layfield misappropriated most of the money owed to the victim. Some of the money was used to pay clients whose settlement proceeds Layfield had earlier also misappropriated. The State Bar of California disbarred Layfield back in October 2018. Layfield was also a certified public accountant, but his CPA license expired in July 2019, according to the California Board of Accountancy. Layfield will face a statutory maximum sentence of more than 200 years in federal prison at his November 8 sentencing hearing. Davina Katzlan, a 62-year-old Orange County pharmacy owner who admitted to carrying out a $1.8 million insurance fraud scheme, was sentenced to three years in state prison. She was the owner of Quality Care Pharmacy in Santa Ana. She pleaded guilty in May to three felony counts of fraudulent health care claims and grand theft, along with a sentencing enhancement for aggravated white-collar crime. 
Prosecutors say that Katzalan operated a complex and secretive scheme that built medical, Medicare, and Cal Optima, the county's insurance program for the needy. During a 2015 audit, the California Department of Healthcare Services learned that Catalasin had billed Medi-Cal more than $540,000 above what her purchase inventory actually showed. <clears throat> a deeper review by investigators ultimately turned up a total of $1.8 million in overbillings through Medi-Cal, Caloptima, and Medicare. The pharmacy's clientele consisted of residents of 40 boarding care facilities throughout Southern California. And in regulatory news, the Workers' Compensation Appeals Board has issued a notice of public killing hearing regarding proposed additions and amendments to its rules of practice and procedure. The online public hearing is set at 9 a.m. on Friday, September 24, using the Zoom meeting platform. Members of the public may also submit written comments until 4 p.m. that day using the appropriate submission form. If written comments are timely submitted, it is not necessary to present oral comments at the public hearing. The primary purpose of this rulemaking is to formalize the processes for the remote hearings, electronic filing, and electronic service that developed during the Novell coronavirus pandemic. The WCAB's notice of the proposed rulemaking, the text of the proposed regulations, and the initial statement of reasons can be found on its rulemaking page. To attend the online public hearing or present statements or arguments orally, please use the links provided by the DWC on its webpage. And in medical news, according to a recent study by McKinsey, consumer interest in telemedicine rose from 11% to 76% during the pandemic. 57% of healthcare providers said they viewed telemedicine more favorably, and 64% of providers are comfortable using telemedicine. In the course of just a few months, telemedicine physician visits rose from 50 to 100 from 50 to 175 times depending on geography and type of practice the types of changes made by the states and CMS which guides rules for some states vary and include allowing additional services to be delivered by tele teletechnologies relaxing provider licensing requirements amending reimbursement rules often reimbursed at the higher office visit rates to encourage telemedicine, and allowing different modes of technology such as audio-only calls. Currently, fewer than 100 medical services are approved for telemedicine by CMS, which is a small fraction of the 8,000 press services covered by Medicare and Medi-Cal. In workers' compensation, telemedicine has also gained wider acceptance during the pandemic as many states relaxed restrictions regarding its use for injured workers. For workers' compensation claims, 
The list of benefits for use of telemedicine include reduced care delays and improved access to timely care, increased provider options, especially in rural areas, a solution for physician shortages, reduction in time away from work for employee health care visits, mitigation of transportation issues, quick and convenient access to physical therapy, expanded availability of mental and behavioral health, lower costs for payers and employers, and increased patient satisfaction. Many of the legal and regulatory changes regarding telemedicine are temporary, and it remains to be seen which will become permanent and where. And in other news, American employees say that the number one workplace feature they'll be searching for post-COVID is the ability to continue working remotely when they please. That's according to a new study reported by studyfinds.org of 2,000 Americans who are still working from home during the pandemic. More than two in five, that is 48%, say a company's policy on remote work is now their number one desired workplace perk. It's so important that nearly three in four, that 72% claim they wouldn't even consider working for a company that did not offer flexible work from home policies. Although 36% think the job is more difficult when working remotely. 71% say they have a better working life balance when working from home. Unfortunately, working from home hasn't been all rainbows and butterflies for employees. From not having the right office equipment, 35%, to having difficulty communicating with coworkers, said 36%, or having too many distractions, said 34%, and working from home is not a flawless system for many. Employers also say they would like to purchase an internet upgrade, 48% said that, a new computer claimed 40%, or a new red desk or workstation to improve their remote work experience. One in five percent expressed dissatisfaction with their company meeting employee needs while working from home. So that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. We also publish our daily news, our podcast, and other utilities on our free WorkCompApps.com smartphone app. Again, I'm Renee Foltz with Floyd, Scarin, Manuki, and Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news. <laughs>